0: 90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science.
1: Hey, Shannon, how are you? Uh,
0: pretty good, John. Uh, how are you doing? Finally back in Pennsylvania?
1: Finally back in Pennsylvania. We're actually broadcasting this show the week we recorded it, <laughs> unlike the last couple.
0: <laughs> Why is that now? <laughs>
1: That's because I got married.
0: Yay! I need my cowbell. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I have to say that this was... I've been to a Pi Day wedding before, but I think yours was even nerdier. (laughs) And I've been to a Pi Day wedding. (laughs) (laughs) We
1: did start at 3.14 in the afternoon.
0: That's right. Yes. uh Uh-huh. And had a drone as your ring (laughs) bearer. Yes. uh... And uh, you couldn't have... You know, just thrown a garter like a normal person. You had to build a pneumatic garter cannon. <laughs> yes, I did build a garter <laughs> cannon. Uh,
1: my my fiance at the time did not think that I would do it. Uh, oh, she should I know didn't.
0: better to, than to challenge you. <laughs> <laughs> Your nerdiness knows no bounds. Uh, no, it was beautiful and wonderful, and we we're so glad that you and Lindy invited us to be there with you guys. And I'm sure you will. Have a happy life together if she can live with your nerdiness.
1: (laughs) Thanks. And we're glad you came. It's the first time you or I have seen each other in person in several years we finally Uh, figured out.
0: uh, Yeah, exactly. It's not like we got to sit down and have a beer because I think you were a little busy. So.
1: (laughs) Yeah, but uh, I'll put some links in the show notes. We've got some video from the drone and video of the drone. (laughs) Our video from the drone while we were shooting the garter cannon, so totally, uh,
0: <laughs> totally worth it to watch it. Trust me, it was great.
1: <laughs> but we've got all kinds of exciting stuff coming up in terms of the podcast too, right?
0: Uh, yeah. So we're both—it's uh, crunch time now, and it's about to be our favorite time of year. And um, it is conference season, and we have a GSA poster coming up, and that's in Baltimore. And uh, that is going to be Sunday, November 1st, is um, my poster. Uh, You're going to be doing an AGU talk coming up in December, also on the podcast. So hopefully we'll be reminding you guys uh, in the upcoming weeks as well more about these. But hopefully you swing by the poster on Sunday at AGU or at GSA if you're going to be there.
1: Yeah. And I will... uh... Tell everybody the details of the AGU talk when we get a little bit closer. I, I have the date somewhere, but it's early enough. Nobody's planning for AGU yet until GSA <laughs> yes, is that, done.
0: That's it. Yes, that's exactly right. Uh, GSA is creeping up on us pretty quickly. So, um, But I'm pretty excited about it, and I hope we get a lot of new listeners that join us. And I hope that anyone that's out there listening now, like I said, will swing by. The talk is on Sunday, and I'll get more details about that for you all next week.
1: Yes, and the uh, the AGU Talk is also in partnership with our friends at the Orbital Mechanics. Uh, so be sure, if you haven't checked out their show, to go listen to their show, because their show is nerdy in an entirely different way.
0: It is. And it's a
1: really great listen.
0: <laughs> uh, it, it totally is. They say we're bigger nerds than them, but I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know about that.
1: <laughs> Though, you know, today... Uh, You picked the show topic, and I thought it was really appropriate because of all the timing of these events, and it ties into space a little bit, so hopefully uh, our listeners will enjoy talking about the Red Planet.
0: Dun-dun-dun. Right. (laughs) So I just got finished reading The Martian. I wanted to read it before the movie came out. The movie just came out. I know you've read The Martian, and then there's also been a lot of news on... um, some new data from Mars as well, and that's been all over. It's on Science Friday and um, all different kinds of media outlets. So while there's a lot to say about Mars, and I'm sure we'll have more than one Mars show, I thought that maybe we could focus on what this new ad- newest data is and just sort of what it means in terms of the history of water on Mars, because that's what we're really interested in.
1: Right. I mean, water anywhere is a big deal because of life, and we've suspected that Mars probably has water of some form other than ice for a while, but now we know it does, even though it's maybe not the friendliest waters as we'll talk about.
0: <laughs> that's right. So water is that thing that's been sort of predetermined. If we're going to find any life anywhere, it has to do with some type of water. I think we're all pretty much on board on that um but before we talk about that new stuff i put together just some elementary facts about mars because i mean mars is one of our closest neighbors but you know how much do we really know about it so we can just go down the fact sheet about mars to give you a little background about the red planet
1: Yeah, so to start off with, Mars, though our closest neighbor is quite a ways from the sun, uh, clocking in at uh, just a shade over 141 million miles, uh, compare that to Earth's, you know, very measly 92.9 million.
0: <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So it's a bit further out there. In terms of how big Mars is in comparison to the Earth, I thought this was interesting. The diameter of Mars is 6790 kilometers, which is about the same as the radius of Earth.
1: Right. And so that means that, you know, Mars has a gravity, uh, gravitational acceleration that's about 3.7 meters per second per second so it's less than earth but you could still you know get around pretty handily
0: right exactly so we experience you know a little over two times the amount of gravity on earth uh than you would on mars so you're not necessarily going to fly off um the neat thing about mars too i mean in comparison to the rest of the planets is that it's at a 25 degree axial tilt and you know earth is 23 and a half so it's very similar setup, you know in terms of The season changes, although there's a little bit of difference than we see here on Earth. Um, And in that vein, one year on Mars is 687 Earth days.
1: Right. So significantly longer years, significantly longer seasons, which means there are bigger seasonal changes that can happen in terms of freezing and thawing. And that makes it easy to observe even from ground-based telescopes for us, which is super handy, especially before we sent probes.
0: Uh, right, exactly. And so if you've read The Martian or seen the movie, I'm guessing, um, you'll know that they refer to Mars days as sols, right? And so one sol on Mars is 24 hours and 37 Earth minutes.
1: Right, so just enough to eventually drift far enough out to make things really miserable for Mars operations, folks.
0: <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But since
1: it is so much further from the sun and. You know, the strength of radiation falls off with the square of distance, uh, inverse square law. Mm. Well, it's kind of cold.
0: <laughs> yes. So Mars does experience quite the range of temperatures 30 degrees C, which is a nice hot, totally habitable temperature um, that we see on Earth frequently, down to minus 140 C. But the average is about minus 63 degrees Celsius. So yeah, it's a bit chilly there. <laughs>
1: And for those of you who don't speak Celsius, that's minus 81 Fahrenheit.
0: Oh, I refuse to go there.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> but I'm glad you did. You're right. Um, and then in terms of how weighty Mars is, the mass is about one-tenth out of the Earth. And just for comparison, uh, the average density on Earth, and this isn't at the surface, it's of all of Earth, is about 5.5 cubic centimeters per cc. And then in Mars, it's about 3.9, so just a little bit less.
1: Right. And finally, since we are meteorologists, <laughs> uh, or at least claim to be sometimes, yep, exactly. we have to talk about the atmosphere. <laughs> uh, Mars has an atmosphere that is about 1 100th as dense as ours here on Earth. So it does have an atmosphere. They do get dust devils and storms and all this, uh, which play key roles sometimes in the martian <laughs> yes but it doesn't have uh nearly the air density which means that well, maybe some of the the wind storms are a little bit less fierce than they'd like you to believe in the movies
0: uh yeah that's true um it does wreak havoc on um trying to steer those little space probes though that's for that's for real problems um, due to all the blowing dust in the minuscule atmosphere. Um, The atmosphere also makeup is a lot different. You know, we have a mostly nitrogen atmosphere here on Earth, and Mars's atmosphere is 96% CO2.
1: Right, yeah, so that's a lot different. And, you know, there have been all kinds of arguments in the past about terraforming Mars or trying to increase the oxygen's atmosphere and get liquid water back on the surface and make it habitable again. And this has gone on for a really long time. You put a link in the show notes about how fascinated people are with Mars.
0: Exactly. And it just doesn't seem to let up. I mean, Venus is out there. Venus has super cool geology, but we love Mars, man. (laughs) Um, So I encourage you to go click on this little space.com link. It's kind of a cool little, what is our cultural fascination with Mars? And clearly we're still super obsessed with it. And I think that's just going to get more intense um, obsession as we learn more about it with all the probes we have up there um but so back in the 1960s thanks to the mariner flybys we actually thought that there was vegetation on mars because the spectrum we were receiving back from mariner looked very similar to chlorophyll and so we made the assumption that that means mars was vegetated
1: which would have been really amazing
0: uh yeah, there's a great <laughs> Isaac Asimov book um, that basically is about all these vegetation that grows on Mars and all these little crazy animals that lived in it that they found. It was pretty awesome. I highly highly suggest um, Asimov if you're interested in Mars. Um, and as an aside, how cool were the 1960s for science? I mean, this is when plate tectonics took off. We thought there was life on Mars, there were plants growing there. It's kind of neat. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I mean, this was the time where space exploration really kicked into high gear. Uh, we, yep. we finally got rocketry kind of down <laughs> yes. by the late 60s.
0: <laughs> exactly. Uh, Visited the moon for the first and last time, sigh. Um, I will say, speaking of the moon as an aside as well, the book Seven Eves about the moon exploding is a pretty spectacular sci-fi novel, too, if you're into that. <laughs> It is.
1: Uh, I normally don't read fiction, as people that have known me for a long time attest. Uh And I have recommended The Martian to everyone, Seven Eves to everyone. People have been a little uh, hesitant because they've been burned by my book recommendations in the past. (laughs) Uh,
0: Yeah, they are kind of dry sometimes.
1: (laughs) But they're really great books. Uh, If you're into space or science at all, you should check them out because, especially The Martian... Uh, The science is really good, and it's getting people excited about Mars and excited about science again, which is great.
0: Exactly. So what's that is exactly what John said. What's cool about the Martian is that it's scientifically accurate. Like, this is stuff, this isn't, you know, Asimovian, sort of, there are plants on Mars and we live in these big blow-up bubbles, even though there are some blow-up bubbles in the Martian. Um, (laughs) Yes. (laughs) But... Yeah, exactly. So the science behind this and, you know, anything that comes with science, if you listen to the orbital mechanics, you know this too, you've got to get a lot of public support for these big, expensive, you know, space exploration programs. And I think that this is doing a lot to sort of help people understand how much we're learning about Mars and how that investment is truly worth it.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, the book is non-technical, so You can read it as bedtime reading legitimately, Mm -hmm. Uh, but it is accurate to the point of there's an Adam Savage interview with Andy Weir that I will link in the show notes where he says there are some dates in there about, oh, well, we would have had a Thanksgiving meal on this day had the whole crew still been on Mars, and from that, the orbital mechanics are accurate enough that you can back-calculate the launch date of their mission.
0: That's incredible. Uh,
1: Because they are that accurate. He actually ran the computer simulations of how long would it take to get to Mars, how long would it take for these orbits the orbital maneuvers they do. Uh it's really really great and <laughs> uh it's a good interview. You should definitely check it out. Yes. But there's other people that are people other than government funded space agencies that have Mars in their sights also, right?
0: Uh right, exactly. Um so <laughs> before it was cool people like elon musk talked about mars a lot too um i know you've read his biography i have not yet um so maybe you can elaborate more
1: uh yeah so he thought for a long time about mars and you know well, we need to colonize mars we need to be an interplanetary species uh and that's one of his goals that's kind of the goal of spacex eventually is to get to mars and he even has an email that's in this book uh, when there was talk about SpaceX uh, going out for an IPO, you know, going public. And he says, well, I don't want to do that until we have Mars secure. Huh. Uh, so he's really passionate about Mars, getting to Mars, getting people to Mars. And SpaceX is moving very fast because they're not quite as bogged down by bureaucracy, Uh In fact, he actively fights against things like needless acronyms, which anybody (laughs) who's worked in aerospace knows that's all aerospace is, is acronyms.
0: (laughs) Yes, exactly. Um, It's kind of a a good dovetail with the Seven Eves book, too. Um, And I know, you know, these are fiction books, but they're very scientific in their background. And um, in that Seven Eves book, it's all about not just national space agencies, but these independent, you know, commercialized space agencies, too. So that's always, that's really interesting. Um, Elon Musk, too, has said a lot of stuff about artificial intelligence that Stephen Hawking has talked about, warning against the overusage of artificial intelligence. So that's that's an interesting bent, too, if you're interested in uh, following that. I'm sure we could have a show about that as well.
1: Yeah, so you should definitely check out his biography. I listened to it as an audio book. Uh, on the long drive that we recently had, and <laughs> it, was, it was really worth it. But we should go on to the, <laughs> the, the exciting, the actual real thing that just happened, which is water <laughs> on Mars. I
0: know, exactly. Um, so for a long time, actually, we've known that there was water on Mars. We've suspected that there was watering on Mars, right? Um, but there's things that we're talking about in the media uh, that they're calling RSLs. They're recurring slope lineae. Um, And so all that means is there are these lines on slopes, um, often in crater slopes or just on the sides of canyons, that show up in the imagery of Mars. Um, And there are these long lines, they look like something wet, basically leaking out, and they show up when it's warm and they disappear when it's cold. Uh, They were first identified in 2011 um, by a now professor at the Georgia Institute of Technology. And they originally thought that these RSLs, you know, were somehow water. Um, We've got some links to great pictures of them from the uh, Red Planet blog uh, from Arizona State. And that also actually has a lot of any other Mars news that you would ever want. It's a great resource. Um, And then we've linked a couple of papers discussing these things. But... What are they? Dark spots that we see on slopes, in equatorial regions, only there when it's warm. And when we say warm, you know, minus 23 degrees C, or for those of you that need it, it's about 10 degrees Fahrenheit.
1: (laughs) Yes. And, you know, that should set off alarm bells for everybody, because we just said about 10 degrees Fahrenheit, or below zero C, and liquid water, so that means that it can't be pure water.
0: Exactly. Exactly um one of these things about these rsls is that they appear during warm seasons they're most prevalent on the equator facing slopes and those are the slopes that get the most sunlight and they lengthen incrementally as the day goes on so as it gets warmer these things get longer and they really appear like some sort of flow um but it can't be liquid water because 10 degrees fahrenheit right so we have this so they look like water looks like water's near the surface but we already knew that before 2011, right?
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, we've we've known about those for quite a while, and they look just like on a road cut, where after a big rain and water's percolated down, you see water seeping out of a road cut.
0: Right. So these RSLs aren't the first thing that we've seen, right? Um, at the Phoenix lander site in 2008, and also in like Curiosity's tire treads. I know we've seen these, the presence of perchlorates. And ice Right. Right at those sites at the surface, right? This wasn't digging or it was just scooping right at the surface or seeing entire treads. So we figured that the presence of these perchlorides meant that there was water really close to the surface.
1: Right, but we didn't know how close and how far, you know, how deep the frozen layer was.
0: Right, and what it's made of, right?
1: <laughs> right, so... <laughs> I mean, we, we had some spectra, especially from Phoenix, that had the full chemical package on right, it. Right. Uh, but now we know, like you said, that it's, well, it's pretty close to the surface. <laughs> it's something that we could get to, which is important.
0: And these perchlorates, um, like I said, we've known they've been there for a long time, uh, but they, they play a big part in this story about water, too, because as John said earlier on, this isn't just water right, because it would be frozen at 10 degrees Fahrenheit. So what can you add to water to make it not freeze at those kinds of temperatures? And it turns out you add salts to water. So perchlorates right. are ClO4. Um, and I don't like anything else about chemistry, John, so I'm going to let you talk about perchlorates. Uh,
1: yeah, I didn't put anything in <laughs> the notes here either. Uh, you've got to remember, you're talking to a geophysicist. Yeah. Uh, so... yeah. <laughs> the, uh the nice thing about them is perchlorates in water, we can basically pull a Mark Watney and we can make rocket fuel.
0: Exactly. <laughs> so we've known from the spectra that these perchlorates were around on the surface. And then we've got these RSLs. And this is the new exciting part that has come out um, just recently is that this research group um, in Georgia has been looking at these RSLs for a long time. But now the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter has seen more when we focused on these RSLs. So we're not just seeing perchlorates and these weird features. What we're seeing is hydrated salts. And that's in conjunction with these recurring slope lineae. So that means the salts are getting hydrated by water. And it happens when these recurring slope lineae are developing. And it can lead you to the conclusion the recurring slope lineae are salty water that's coming you know very close to the surface and percolating out uh, along these slopes
1: which is really cool because that means well as we've known but mostly thought it was geological processes that mars has a very active landscape
0: exactly i mean we've thought it's been active but now we know for sure that it's not only active because of the wind But it's being shaped by water right at the surface as well. So it's still very um, actively changing the landscape. And like John said, I mean, you can, perchlorates are a source of rocket fuel. So we use these here on Earth too. And that's one of those important things to think about if we're going to start sending people somewhere. Probably need to make the fuel on site to get back because we can't afford that kind of weight. To take all the fuel you need to get there and come back so this is actually a really exciting um, chapter in sort of the mars history and as we keep sending up all these different uh probes and landers reconnaissance orbiter we're learning so much more about the red planet
1: yes and this again is a place that uh Read The Martian, because they talk about making fuel. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Yes, that is uh, the reference book of sorts, I guess, for this, because there's a lot of things in there that are very technologically feasible now or will be in the next decade, probably.
0: I mean, I'd like to think that Nature and, you know, whoever the studio producing The Martian got together to sort of release these things at the same time, but... (laughs) I don't think that's true.
1: <laughs> I doubt it. But, you know, uh, the the producers did work with NASA to try to make very realistic interfaces for the spacecraft. Mm-hmm. Uh, they said, you know, what would this interface look like if you were designing it from scratch? Because right now when you think spacecraft, you think Apollo or Soyuz, lots of switches. Right. And kind of old-looking technology, which is true because the Soyuz spacecraft has flown basically the same hardware since sometime in the 70s
0: <laughs> yeah exactly yeah. and you know our newly um retired um space shuttle fleet ourselves is all 80s technology right our calculators are s- smarter than the space shuttle is now so yep yeah, that's that's really interesting and it'll be interesting to see you know what happens in the future but it's really cool you can follow that blog at asu um and it has very up-to-date um new discoveries about mars so this is pretty exciting time i think
1: And I'm sure we'll be coming back to this as we learn more and more. But the last few episodes have been running kind of long. So it seems like that uh, maybe we should make an effort to wrap this one up a little bit early (laughs) and talk about Fun Paper Friday, because this is an interesting one.
0: Uh, Yeah, this is a really strange study. It makes me wonder what you look at on the Internet um, in your spare time.
1: So (laughs) sometimes you ask how I find these fun papers if you read uh, science you'll know that they are kind of short on space so they just start the next article at the immediate bottom of the previous <laughs> one no matter where it is so i was actually reading a page for my research that had to do with antarctica and ice streams and i noticed the title of this paper at the bottom of the last page because it's the next paper in that volume of science <laughs>
0: so this one was a totally
1: accidental find (laughs) but it's really interesting it's the aeroelastic flutter producing hummingbird feather songs by clark et al
0: (laughs) um yeah yeah i did wonder where you found this but i see now all the ice (laughs) talk above that um this yeah. is this is really neat and it's even cooler because you know I have a hummingbird feeder and I've observed the same exact sort of um behaviors in hummingbirds and they're loud mean little birds um
1: <laughs> yes they are
0: <laughs> but so they talk about the researchers talk about that during courtship flights and this is actually really spectacular to watch um some hummingbird species not all uh the males produce these diverse sounds and it's due to their tail feathers that have these varying shapes, but not just the shape of the tail feathers, but sort of the shapes that are next to each other. And these courtship flights involve diving down to try to impress the lady hummingbird for whatever reason. (laughs) And um, as they do this, the speeds and the air flowing through their feathers produce different melodies, essentially.
1: Right, so... This is something that we want to avoid in airplane wings, Flutter, right. <laughs> because it will eventually tear them apart. Exactly. But here they're using it as a mechanism to create sound and amplify sound. And as I was reading this paper, it did also confirm a statement that you made a few episodes ago. Almost every paper I pick has to do with high speed photography. I know. <laughs>
0: That was the first thing I thought of when I read the <laughs> read the first paragraph. I was like, "Oh, this is how he found it." <laughs> exactly yes. what I thought.
1: <laughs> so they do some high speed photography of hummingbird feathers in a wind tunnel, and they also use this scanning uh, laser Doppler vibrometer and measure a hundred different points on the feather many times a second to actually see uh, what the dynamics are. Uh, going on with the feather vibrating. And it turns out, as you would expect, it's a complex function of how stiff the feather is, the inertia, the different aerodynamic forces, the angle uh, at which the wind is coming on, the speed at which the wind is coming on. It's really complex.
0: Uh, And it gets even more complex when you start to look at the actual... Hummingbird and say, okay, so this size and shape of feather is always next to this different size and shape of feather. And their combined interaction works to either amplify the sounds or to dampen the sounds just based on which feathers are next to each other and sort of the way that they're vibrating.
1: Yeah, so when you, they had uh, simulated removing one feather in a series that was normally next to each other and saw significant reductions in the amplitude of the sound. Like Chan just said, pointing towards sympathetic vibration, uh, reinforcing the sound, or, you know, different modes coming up. Uh, they even went as far as to look at the harmonics that are present and saying that normally they saw both odd and even harmonics, but sometimes they only saw the odds, which is what you would expect for, you know, model of a vibrating bar that's clamped at one end. Uh, but that tells you that A lot of times it's not a vibrating bar clamped at one end. The oscillation is even more complicated than that. Uh, But I was really amazed at the speeds that they were simulating. We're talking pushing 20 meters a second.
0: 20 meters a second. I couldn't believe that either because obviously as they change their speed, it changes the types of sounds that they're creating too. So that was something that they looked into. And if you can imagine these little hummingbirds diving, you know, so the sound is going to be different when they start their dive versus when they pass the female, and it makes you wonder if they're selectively, you know, choosing the the heights that they dive from, which were really high, at uh, forty meters or something, in some cases. Yeah. Um. So that they're passing the females at a very specific frequency. That's what that's what I thought about when I was reading this. I think that's interesting. That you know that might be something that's ingrained into these hummingbirds. But it's not just their tails too. Um, they're talking about these little bee hummingbirds. Is the clade that they sort of focused on. Um, but they talked about also that it's not just the tail feathers, but it's also the tails in conjunction with their wings, making these triphonation, so three foist sound systems during these mating displays, and that's that's pretty intense. <laughs>
1: Yeah, and some of the feathers were fluttering, you know, and just kind of the way you would imagine. Some of them were fluttering with torsion modes or more complex bending modes. Uh, So there were, you know, we're talking fundamental frequencies everywhere from like a kilohertz, sub kilohertz, up to uh, pretty close to 10 kilohertz. So this is in our hearing range, and Mm -hmm. the spectra look just textbook on this it's pretty amazing
0: uh yeah exactly so (laughs) you know you think i mean some of the stuff in nature is very precise and this is sort of that's what i thought when i was looking at these two they're very precise frequency peaks that you see in these different feathers it's pretty impressive um it's pretty impressive to think that you know they use this it's not just something that happens but they use this during you know mating displays so This is a very specific thing with a specific purpose to the hummingbird's sort of life cycle. It's pretty neat to think about the complexness of the sounds their wings are making as they dive through the air.
1: It's true. And this is a very deep, nerdy tangent. (laughs) But we wouldn't have it any other way. Exactly. Uh, Towards the end of the paper, it says that their dive sounds also include heterodyne frequencies and uh, are you familiar with these
0: I uh, know no I'm not I was very interested to hear you talk about that though
1: so this is something anybody that's uh, a ham radio operator shortwave radio listener will be familiar with the term heterodyne receivers or super heterodyne receivers uh, it's something that we talk about in electrical engineering and radio frequency uh, signal path design a lot and so in the electrical world, you take something called a mixer, and you put in two frequencies, and you get out the same data, but it shifted. So the output is the frequencies added together or differenced, and there are harmonics. Okay. Okay, so let's say you had a 30 kilohertz signal as an input and a 10 kilohertz signal. Well, you would get an output that is them added together, so 40 kilohertz, and then a difference Right, so then mm-hmm. twenty kilohertz and all the harmonics of that. So it's really useful to everything in radio, and um, how a lot of your tuning mechanisms work. Radars use it a lot uh, for continuous wave and frequency modulated continuous wave radars. Right. But what's really what's really happening is it's pointwise multiplication of the two signals in the time domain. Okay. So if you graph the two sine waves and then you multiply the first point with the first point of the that wave, the second point, with the second point, assuming they're sampled at the same time, you get this output. It's this really weird nonlinear thing. Uh, but what's neat is from the convolution principle, point-wise multiplication in the time domain is the same thing as convolution in the frequency domain. Mm-hmm. Okay. Or we say convolution in the time domain is the same thing as multiplication in the frequency, the frequency. domain. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we use this trick to speed up processing a lot, uh, but if you, it's a lot more intuitive to think about it going the other way. So I'll put a link in the show notes to this YouTube video, where you are convolving two time domain signals together, i.e., multiplying in frequency domain, mm-hmm. uh, where this guy records himself speaking, and then he records, he goes into this very large open church theater and claps. And just records the response to that impulse. And then you convolve those two signals, and it sounds like he is speaking in the church. Wow. So it's uh, similar to that, what's going on. But basically heterodyning means you're just non-linearly putting these together to shift the information to a different frequency. And Uh, getting lots of multiples out of it, too.
0: That complexity is incredible. And you're getting this from different sized feathers next to each other.
1: Right, so you are doing multiplication in the time domain with
0: feathers. (laughs) I never thought about convolving hummingbirds, but you know, it is a new meaning to the
1: word flight computer.
0: (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Wow, that's uh, that was a pretty interesting find. Um, I'm not going to look at them the same way again. It also says uh, that flycatchers do this as well, so that's the state bird of Oklahoma. Um, I'll be listening for it.
1: Yeah, and we had to do this because winter is coming, so we wanted to get this one out out there while people might still have a chance.
0: Winter hasn't come in Oklahoma. It was ninety-two degrees today.
1: Ah, uh, yeah, it's cloudy and cool here. So. Yeah, no,
0: no, it's uh it's back to summer here, but it'll come eventually, and then we'll get to those oh, snow, yes. those snow fun papers. We promise.
1: Yes, we still have those coming. So that is your fun paper Friday for this week. If you have comments, uh, anything that you think that we maybe didn't do the best job explaining, or you have a fun paper that you would like us to talk about, go ahead and send that to us. We love hearing from you. Also. Uh, make sure you go on iTunes and write a review so other people can find the show or just tell your friends. Uh, We're really enjoying, uh, as our audience grows, hearing more and more from our listeners. Uh, It really makes our day. So, Shannon, how can they make our day?
0: Yeah, it absolutely does. Uh, You can make our day by sending us anything but hate mail to show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. You can find us on the web, don'tpanicgeocast.com. And as always, we're on Twitter, at don'tpanicgeo. John is at Geo underscore Lehman, and I am at Shannon Doolin.
1: And until next week, remember, don't panic.
0: It's not an exact science.
1: Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies.